It's a story that captured the attention of Central Ohio. It is a mystery we've been following since the early 80s. Detectives here at Columbus Police Headquarters on the fifth floor, they've actually been working on this case for about 38 years. Eight-year-old Kellyanne Prosser. Kellyanne Prosser. Kellyanne Prosser. Now the police say the case is solved. A cold case nearly 38 years in the making is finally over. Police say there is justice for a family who's been waiting almost 40 years years. Columbus police announced that the abduction and murder of eight-year-old Kellyanne Prosser has been solved. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Greg Bodker. I'm a deputy chief with the Columbus Division of Police Support Services Subdivision. On September 20th, 1982, Kellyanne Prosser was abducted while walking through the University of District in Columbus, Ohio. On September 22nd, Kellyanne's body was discovered in a cornfield along A.W. Wilson Road in Madison County. For the next four decades, with the support of Kelly's family, detectives devoted thousands of hours to the quest for finding Kelly's murderer. Today, nearly 38 years after Kelly was abducted and murdered, the Columbus Division of Police, in partnership with Advanced DNA, announced that the team assembled on each side of me, with the support of Kellyanne's family, have positively and conclusively identified the person responsible for the murder of Kellyanne Prosser, bringing to a close one of CPD's most intense investigations. Welcome to The Fifth Floor. The Fifth Floor podcast is designed to bring you cases from the Columbus Division of Police in Columbus, Ohio. This podcast is hosted and produced by real police officers with the intention of educating the public about some of our unsolved cases. By providing material in this new format, we hope that with the help of our listeners, we will find additional information to solve these cases. We here at Columbus Division of Police have huge news to announce. The hard work of Columbus Police cold case detectives has paid off and they were able to identify Kelly Ann Prosser's murderer. As you may remember, Kelly Ann was abducted on September 20, 1982 and was found beaten, strangled, and sexually assaulted in a cornfield on September 22, 1982. Nearly 40 years later, After an exhaustive investigation, new technology emerged that allowed Columbus Police cold case detectives to solve this horrifying case and bring some answers to the family that has waited so long to know. We may never know why, but finally, we know who. I personally haven't stopped thinking about this case from the moment I heard about it. It's one thing to know monsters exist in this world, and another to know one preyed in our own backyard. Nothing is more vile than someone kidnapping and sexually assaulting a child, than taking her life and leaving her in a cornfield. While we are police officers, we are humans first, and our hearts ache for Linda, Kelly's mom, and Kelly Ann's whole family. It's been a few weeks since we released episode three. 
So we're going to take a couple of minutes to recap what we have discussed in the previous three episodes. If you're a new listener, we are current Columbus police officers, and we were authorized to try a new project. That project, get information out to a larger audience about Columbus police cold cases. We've been discussing the abduction and murder of eight-year-old Kelly Prosser, who was kidnapped while walking home from school on September 20, 1982. She was located deceased two days later in a cornfield. Kelly was abducted in the city of Columbus in Franklin County, but was found in Madison County, which is west of Columbus. Columbus police homicide detectives kept the case, which went from a missing person investigation to a homicide investigation. Kelly was a bright, friendly child who lived with her mother, her new stepfather, her brother, and her sister. Kelly was a happy child who was thrilled about her mother's new husband. Kelly was in third grade and attended Indianola Alternative School. She was walking home from school north on North High Street from 16th Avenue, where her school was located. Kelly never made it home that day. Officers and community members started looking for Kelly immediately after her mother notified police that she was missing. A very observant family in Madison County located a blue raincoat in the middle of the road and ended up calling it into Columbus Police after seeing a news article confirming that Kelly had been wearing that blue raincoat when she was abducted. A search team from several jurisdictions was formed and began the search on Tuesday, September 21st, and then resumed the search on Wednesday morning, the 22nd. A trooper located Kelly's body a few rows back in a cornfield, and her family confirmed it was in fact Kelly. Homicide detectives took over and began the hunt for Kelly's killer. Their search has spanned 38 years, and while an incredible number of work hours have gone into working the case, Kelly's killer has yet to be identified. We have discussed several suspects with you, several who have been ruled out and several who have not. You've heard about how detectives and scientists have done extensive DNA collection, comparing that DNA to suspect profiles. No one has been charged or officially named a person of interest. We are using false names to refer to the suspects that have been investigated. We talked about Calvin, who fled to West Virginia the evening that Kelly had gone missing. Calvin was the initial focus of the investigation, and detectives painstakingly evaluated his alibi, his movements, and served several search warrants on his home and his car. Calvin's actions were highly suspect, but his story kept checking out, showing that he was unlikely to be involved in Kelly's murder. Calvin was eventually definitively ruled out with DNA analysis, but not for several years when DNA started becoming widely used as a criminal investigative tool. Then we told you about Brian, whose alibi had him clocked in at work, but several detectives still wondered about him. Brian used to live in a farmhouse that had been torn down, very close to where Kelly's body had been located. Although Brian died while this case was being investigated, he had never been ruled out as a suspect by DNA and still remained an active suspect. We also talked about Gary, who committed suicide a short time after Kelly was murdered. Gary had been charged for sexually assaulting his own daughter 
and allegedly had confessed to killing Kelly right before he took his own life. Detectives spent over a year investigating Gary, only to eventually obtain DNA that ruled him out. This was still in the early days of DNA analysis, which is why it took over a year to rule him out. Marvin was another suspect we told you about. Marvin was deceased, and his body was eventually disinterred to obtain DNA. Marvin was ruled out via DNA after it was taken from him posthumously. We referred to several other suspects that we didn't name and discussed how DNA has been gathered from a number of people in order to rule them out. None of the suspects that we have previously discussed turned out to be the killer. We mentioned that this case has a huge number of suspects, and many of them seem like they could be Kelly's killer. Interestingly, the real killer, Harold Jarrell, was in a 2014 suspect list and had not yet been ruled out. We'll come back to that prior investigation that had been done on Jarrell and why he wasn't anywhere near the top of the suspect list. This case has been worked consistently from day one by a number of dedicated detectives. We have interviewed detectives and officers that have worked on the case. We have spoken to Kelly's family and heard their stories and shared in their grief. You may remember in Episode 3, we learned about DNA analysis from Lindsay Simon and about a possible suspect profile from Special Agent Kristen Cadu. Today, we'll also be hearing from two detectives assigned to this cold case, Sergeant McConnell and Detective Kroom. We will also be interviewing the owner of a genetic genealogy company. We will dive into what genetic genealogy is and how it was the key to solving this case. Before we get into who Harold Warren Jarrell was, we would like to give you some information about our cold case unit and about cold cases in general. Not every department has the staffing to devote full-time detectives to a cold case unit. Luckily, our department is large enough that we're able to fill full-time positions whose sole job is to investigate unsolved homicides. You may be wondering how homicides become cold cases. That isn't set in stone, and different departments may have a different answer to that. We talked to Sergeant McConnell, the cold case sergeant. He will give us some insight on how homicides are transferred to his cold case unit. Sergeant McConnell will also tell us about his group of investigators. I'm Sergeant Terry McConnell in the Homicide Cold Case Unit. Um, I've been in the investigative subdivision since 2006. Um, So in the cold case unit, um, I oversee the review, assignment, investigation of homicide cold cases and the four detectives that work in the unit. The caseload, it varies from time to time. Currently, we have just about 800 to 1,000 cold cases, and uh, the detectives all have several cases that they're either assessing, reviewing, or actively investigating at any one time. Um, The detectives that work in homicide are responsible for going out immediately after the homicide occurs, and they do a lot of the initial scene processing, a lot of the initial interviews of witnesses and families of the victims. And then they're kind of a more hands-on approach to solving the homicide. And then where the difference comes in 
after that 18 month range when it hits our office we're kind of looking back giving it a fresh set of eyes trying to determine what parts of the investigation need to be carried out further um, if there was something at the the time that wasn't done we can go back and hopefully pick up that part of the puzzle and one of the biggest things is technology changes so much over time that that uh, something that may not have been available to the primary detective 18 months ago we may have the ability to do now with advancements in technology having the dedicated cold case unit is we can give these cases the time that it needs the more thorough reviews to get them to a state of solvability. When you have a homicide unit that you go out and work a homicide today and you spend the next three days constantly working to develop your suspect in that case or develop the case if you have a suspect and then before you're finished doing that another homicide's come in and now you're going right back out starting all over again with that. That takes time away from that original homicide then before you know it, you've got three or four homicides a year that that detective's working, and it takes a lot of time. There's a lot of reading in this. you got to know a lot about all of the people involved in the case so that you can find that one link that's going to get you to the suspect. And by having a dedicated cold case unit, we have that ability to put that time and effort into solving a case. How do you feel about using podcasts to share information? I think it's a wonderful idea. I am open to doing whatever it takes to get the information out, um, share what we do to the public and especially the families of the victims. I don't think a lot of people understand how much work we actually do at trying to solve these cases. It's a lot. And so the more, the more opportunities that we have to let the folks know that we're working for them, I think the better. And also, the newer technologies, you have more interest from the public. So by them listening to these stories, I hope it encourages them if they have any information regarding any homicide, whether it's a cold case or current, to reach out to us and share that. Detective Dana Kroom is the primary detective assigned to the Kelly Prosser case. Detective Kroom originally assisted Detective Custer with this case in 2014. He took over the case as the lead detective in 2016. Detective Dana Kroom shared the story of why he wanted to become a police officer, and it's really a powerful story. I'm Detective Dana Kroom. Oh man, I had a great career. After getting out of the Navy in 86, um, I joined the Academy a year later. Um, I worked patrol for four years. And after working four years of patrol, I was assigned to narcotics. I worked, worked uh, narcotics for, uh, for, for 13 years. And then in 2004, I, I went to homicide. Uh, or second shift homicide from 2004 until 2008, 2009. Then I went to first shift homicide. Um, in 2014, I went to cold case, and cold case is probably my most rewarding job. I, I feel like I get, a, you know, you get to see 
cases closed, and and that's our goal to co- close cases. And and there's not, nothing more nothing more rewarding to close a cold case. Two different reasons becoming a police officer. One, my dad was in law enforcement. Um, he he ended up retiring as a deputy sheriff sergeant in Licking County. Um, and uh, what started, I mean, what for me, what I knew I, I wanted to be a police officer for sure is when I was about eight years old, living in New York City. Um, I mean, I had a good friend, me, who was walking from home to what we called the Boys Club. Uh, boys Club where a bunch of young kids would go to play sports, we'd do our homework. Um, we had tutors there, we had counselors there. So we was walking to the Boys Club, um, and some guy offered us some candy. And you know, my dad being in law enforcement, I knew not, not to go with this guy. Um, my friend, I call him Ricky, uh, he ended up going. Um, he never made it back to the boys club and he never made it home that night. And the very next night they found him on the rooftop, deceased. So that one of the, that's one of my driving forces now because I, I know what that felt like even as an eight, nine, 10 year old how that felt like to lose, you know, a good friend. So, and that's probably the reason why I did go to homicide. Anytime, anytime you deal with children, they stick with you. Um, uh, I'm also involved, most of the, the cold case unit is involved in CERT, Critical Incident Response Team. And um, I, I say two different things sticks with me. I, and I, I'll put them in two different categories. Not that, it, not that one means different, but the police, police officers that die in the line of duty and then you know, in my case, um, I had a uh, a triple homicide that happened on Thanksgiving Day, 2010. Um, that probably sticks with me the most, just because uh, uh, the assailant was ex-boyfriend of mom. Um, he killed a two-year-old in the crib, and then uh, an eight, nine-year-old who was trying to defend mom. And uh, the reason why it sticks with me so much not 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 just because they were kids. But the nine-year-old reminded me of uh, my middle daughter, and the mom had the name of my granddaughter. So I kind of, you know, if anybody say there's any case bothering me, that's probably the case, the one case that, since I've been working with Columbus Police Department, that bothers me. Dana is the lead detective on the case and has done a lot of work since he took it over in 2016. Dana will tell us some of what has been done prior to using genetic genealogy. This is probably the most work case that I've been involved in. Um, the detectives that worked it earlier, I mean, they did an unbelievable job. I mean, they, of course, they don't have the technology that we have now, but they did an unbelievable job just ruling people out. As looking, at, looking back at the case, and you look at the suspects they had, and some of them were really good suspects, but by them clearing them out, you can see how they cleared them out. And I agreed with them clearing them out at the time. So, um, yeah. And one thing about this case in particular is uh, uh, anybody that that grew up in Columbus, my age, you know, I'm 55. Anybody my age at, or less, right around that age, they all knew about this case. Most of the officers knew about this case. So, uh, one of the things that you get from a lot of officers, even some officers that we don't know, is ask about this case in particular. Um, so. It has a personal effect on really the whole, the whole I, I believe, the whole city. I mean, most I think a lot of people in the city that grew up in Columbus right around that time, I think a lot of the people remember that case. 
You know, I didn't grow up in the city, so I didn't realize how big this case was until I started working it. I'd like to throw in, too, that all of the good work, the thorough, extensive work that the previous detectives did on this case, and it's obvious when you go back and read through everything that they did and all the documentation they gave, and and what was extremely helpful in this case was the citizens who responded to the news articles, the, the publicity that the case um, created, they responded with tips to the police department. There were lots of tips that came in and they were all followed up on by those original detectives. They did a great job with the follow-up and the documentation. And that's led us to what we have today. And with the preservation of the evidence that was um, to be preserving certain items back at that time, not knowing the technology we would have today has been very helpful. When we first wrote this episode, we were still exploring the use of genetic genealogy in this case and whether or not it would be an option. We then updated our script to reflect that we were in the process of identifying a genealogist. I know that it might frustrate some of you that we can't get episodes out every week, but around here, things change fast. When a lead presents itself, everything else, this project included, gets put to the back burner so that detectives can focus on the investigation. Additionally, I've mentioned before that we are all current police officers, and we do this podcast in addition to our primary assignments. So we may be called away for more pressing matters or for staffing reasons, and don't always have the ability to work on the podcast portion of our job. Bear with us, though. We are also still developing how to wear all of these hats at once. The exciting thing, though, is that not only did we contract with the genetic genealogy company, Advanced DNA, but their work was instrumental in solving the case. We worked with Amanda Reno, one of the founders of Advanced DNA. We brought her in, and she told us a little bit more about her company. My name is Amanda Reno. I am the Director of Genetic and Forensic Case Management for Advanced DNA, and um, our company helps law enforcement work through cold case investigations and um, violent crimes using genetic genealogy. Our company was established in 2019. There are uh, four of us. My uh, partner, Cheryl Hester, uh, works on the genetic genealogy and the forensic research. We also have two additional partners. One is a attorney um, and the other is a retired detective. Cheryl and I have been working together for five years, um, solving everything from adoptee cases, unknown parentage, and um, John and Jane Doe identifications, um, as well as partnering with law enforcement agencies to um, identify suspects or identify the owners of DNA found at crime scenes. Initially, my research started with adoptees, and um, that is something a topic that's very near and dear to me. And eventually, our um, science started being used for helping identify remains of John and Jane Doe's. And I started volunteering doing that work, and it really became a passion to give them their names back. And eventually that um, led to partnering with agencies that were looking to identify DNA at crime scenes that um, either belonged to a suspect or an unknown person that may have been involved in the crime. As law enforcement, 
We have greatly benefited from scientific advancements, especially with regards to how we process crime scenes and what evidence crime scenes are able to provide. In 1982, DNA was gathered and preserved from the Kellyanne Prosser crime scene, and we are confident that it eventually helped solve this crime. Genetic genealogy is one of the newer ways that DNA is being used. There have been several cold cases solved lately because of genetic genealogy. If you read the news, there have actually been several other high-profile solves because of genetic genealogy companies, including one recently in Delaware, Ohio, which is just north of us. Some of the successes that we have had um, range um, from babies that were abandoned or murdered. Um, We also have cases of um, attempted murder, rape, things of that nature that um, span across the country. Amanda's company was identified, and the process that would eventually lead to solving this case began. BCI of Ohio sent the DNA sample to a lab in Oklahoma that would perform the DNA testing. Once the lab was finished, the results were uploaded to GEDmatch and FamilyTree.com. Currently, only two companies allow law enforcement to analyze their data, and it is an opt-in by contributors. Many of the larger DNA analysis companies do not even provide people the option to choose if they want their DNA to be used by law enforcement to solve crimes like murder and rape. Once GEDmatch returned their data, Amanda's work began. The lab process um, is the first portion, and the lab process, um, can it, it can take anywhere from a couple of weeks um, or even just a little bit less. It depends on how busy the lab is. And... Um, up to 60 days at times. It just really depends on what their turnaround is. Once the sample lands in our hands, it can take as little as a few hours for us to um, start finding information that can be helpful for the case. And um, to get to a resolution, some cases they can't get to a resolution with the information. That's an important part of what we do is not all cases will get a uh, will get a lead from the uh, information that we receive. Some need to wait for a while for better matches to come in. But there are breadcrumbs or little clues at the beginning that we're able to provide, and sometimes that's enough to solve the case. The leads that we provide are based off of the matches to the DNA. When we get the DNA file from our lab, we upload it to two places. One is Family Tree DNA, and the other is GEDmatch. Those are the only two places that participate in law enforcement genetic genealogy research. And they have a subset of their databases that actually participate, and those are individuals who have said that they would like to opt in or they would like to have their DNA compared to help with law enforcement cases. We are able to get from that process DNA matches to our DNA profiles. Some of these people might be a as close as a parent or a child, but most of the matches we get are at a second cousin or further. And those DNA matches are the matches that we use to do our research and determine if there are any surnames trending. So if we're seeing that several of those matches are connected to a specific family group from a specific area, that may be um, a place for us to start our research. We may also notice that 
all of the matches seem to come from a specific geographic region. That can be a clue in the case as well. Amanda was in touch with Deputy Chief Bodker and Sergeant McConnell while working the data. When we all spoke later, Amanda said that working closely during that phase of evaluation can actually help her work go faster. Amanda said that when we give her names, she can more quickly determine if there are any links to those suspects. What we were getting initially from Amanda was that the family came primarily from West Virginia and that the suspect was Caucasian. We gave Amanda a few names of suspects that were high on our list, including Brian's name. Amanda ruled them out within a few hours and continued with her work. Later on in the process, Amanda got back in touch with Chief Bodker and told him that the same two surnames kept popping up. She then asked if we were familiar with anyone that had one of the last names. One of those two surnames she gave was Jarrell, which immediately rang bells. In the suspect list was the name Warren Geralds, with an S. We recognized that name as one that was in the suspect list from a 2014 Crime Stoppers tip. Detective Custer was the lead detective at the time, and he had investigated the Crime Stoppers tip as fully as he could. Detective Custer learned that Warren Jarrells had died in Las Vegas from the tipster. He tracked down one of the other names given by the tipster to see what details they could give about Warren and his involvement. Detective Custer tracked that tip as far as he could, but was unable to get any farther due to Warren being deceased and the other named person having minimal details. They also didn't know that the name given by the Crime Stoppers tip was incorrect. Once we gave Amanda that name, she was quickly able to locate a person with a similar name of Harold Warren Jarrell. Further investigation by Amanda into the DNA showed that Harold Warren Jarrell was extremely likely as a suspect and that the DNA lineage was leading right toward him. Finally, there was a break in this case and a line to follow on a likely suspect. Unfortunately, the first thing detectives learned was that Jarrell was deceased, and he had been for some time. Let's start from the beginning, though, and talk about who this person was. Harold Warren Jarrell was born March 22, 1929, somewhere in Ohio, probably Columbus, Ohio. By 1931, his family had moved back to West Virginia. Because he was born nearly 100 years ago, records are somewhat sketchy and his movements are hard to track. It looks like his family spent time in Ohio and West Virginia and that they finally settled in central Ohio. Harold Warren Jarrell went primarily by his middle name of Warren. He was one of seven children, all of whom appear to be deceased at this time. Though records are spotty, we know that Jarrell was married or in long-term relationships over the years with at least four women, and that two of those unions produced children. His family was extremely cooperative with investigators, and most had poor or no relationship at all with Warren. We have a record of one of Warren's divorces from 1948, presumably from his first wife. He was married in 1946 at 17 years of age while residing in West Virginia. He was only married for two years until the divorce was finalized. 
According to the divorce decree, they were married July 2, 1946, and separated on July 11, 1946. They separated after a whopping nine days of marriage and divorced two years later, citing desertion over two years as the cause of their divorce. His then-wife filed for divorce in Roanoke, Virginia, and it was granted in September of 1948. Jarrell entered the Marine Corps and began his service on October 1, 1946. While in the service and married to his first wife, he married again in South Carolina on March 29, 1947. So at this time, he was actually married to two women at the same time. I don't know if either woman knew about the other, but he was married in two different states in a time well before the Internet, so it's likely that he was able to hide that crime. He stayed with his second wife, and during this time they resettled to Ohio and had several children. According to a record located during the search, he and his wife took up residence on South High Street in Columbus, Ohio, sometime in 1950. Jarrell and his second wife filed for divorce in West Virginia, and it was granted in November of 1953. We couldn't find a record of it, and we don't know who requested the divorce. We have little record of him for a few years until after he had several more children in Ohio with another woman, and it appears he was not married to that woman. He got married to his third wife in March of 1976, and by October of 1976, they were divorced. We have records for Warren all over the country, but the timeline is not very exact. We know he spent some time in Houston, Texas in the 70s, and it appears he also spent time in California, Kentucky, different parts of Ohio, and Nevada at various points in his life. As awful as this is to say, we have been contacted by several people and made aware that he molested or attempted to molest various women around the country many years before he abducted and murdered Kellyanne Prosser. Many of these victims never reported his abuse, and it pains us to think that there are likely more victims out there. We want to thank those women for their courage in reaching out about the abuse, and we wish that he was alive to be held accountable for every horrible crime he committed. It appears to us that as he spent time in various parts of the world, he victimized women and children wherever he went. The detectives on this case were able to gather most of Warren's criminal history. The first offense we have on record was assault and battery out of Columbus, Ohio, but I don't have the details of this incident. In 1954, in Boston, Massachusetts, we know that he was arrested for assault and battery of a minor child. Most of these cases we have minimal details on. If we have details, we will go into them. In 1961, he was arrested in Memphis, Tennessee for aiding and abetting prostitution. In 1968, he was arrested in Little Rock, Arkansas for disturbing the peace. In 1971, he was arrested for felonious assault, which was classified as being out of a sex offense. This occurred in Columbus, Ohio. His criminal record has a gap from 1971 to 1977, so it's possible that he spent some time in jail, but I could not find a record for that. 
In September of 1977, he was arrested for the rape of an eight-year-old girl. Because she was a minor and we don't want to re-victimize people, she won't be named. The report says that she and a 10-year-old girl were approached by Warren while they were sitting on a wall at a market, and he offered them money to hand out flyers. The eight-year-old girl went with him and told police that she got into his car and Warren told her they were going to go look at ponies. He then committed a rape offense against her, gave her $20, and took her back to the market. This brave little girl was able to identify him from a lineup a few days later. He was also linked to another report not even an hour prior to the rape where he had approached another young girl, a 12-year-old. He pulled into a driveway and she thought he needed directions, but when she approached the car, he reached out and touched her. She noticed he was exposing himself to her and she went to call her father from a nearby store and he left. Warren was charged in October of 1977 for the rape and was fingerprinted. In March of 1978, he was arrested in Delaware County for disorderly conduct. In May of 1978, he ended up being charged with gross sexual imposition instead of rape and was sentenced to two to five years in Chillicothe Correctional Institution. He was also given a fine and court costs. He was released in January of 1982, which is tragically only eight months before he abducted Kellyanne Prosser. It is unknown where he was released to and where he stayed after his release from prison. We did learn that he had a nephew that lived within a mile of where Kelly lived. His nephew had children that were in Kelly's age group and may have attended the same school. We have not been able to learn if he was aware of Kelly because of that connection or if she truly was a stranger abduction. We don't know if Warren visited his nephew or had any relationship with him. Many of our questions will remain unanswered because Warren is deceased. Warren was arrested one more time in 1985 for OVI and hit skip. We don't have any record of further arrests in Columbus but he could have picked up some since he was staying in different states. We wish we had more information about how much time he spent in jail and or prison, but the records are hard to find or non-existent since his first arrest was all the way back in 1953. His record speaks for itself, showing that he was consistently in trouble with the law with crimes all across the board. We did learn that Warren's only son was killed in a single-car crash in 1986 that was believed to be the result of speed. Warren was interviewed and told the newspaper that he hadn't seen his son in 10 years, but knew from phone conversations that his son liked to drive fast in his cars. We know that Warren was in and out of the Columbus area after he murdered Kellyanne Prosser. We know from a newspaper article that less than three weeks after he murdered her, he was scheduled to be an MC for a country music festival in Carroll, Ohio. We as police officers see evil in every form, but it was hard for us to stomach that just a few days after raping and murdering a little girl, he went on with life and continued his scattered work as an entertainment host. We don't want to spend any more time on Jarrell, no more than is necessary, because he deserves to be in jail for the rest of his life. But Kellyanne Prosser's family was denied that because of his death. Suffice it to say, it's clear to us 
that he was a serial predator and a monster, and his death in Las Vegas in 1996 likely prevented more abuse and more assault to more victims. We've reached out to law enforcement agencies where we know he spent time, and we've briefed them on this case about his behaviors and his patterns so they can look for any similar crimes that he may have committed in their jurisdictions. Let's get back to the investigation. After lead detectives Kroom and Sergeant McConnell were given the name Harold Warren Jarrell as the possible suspect and DNA contributor, they still had a lot more work to do. The leads provided by Amanda were excellent, but not conclusive to proving that Jarrell was the killer. Kroom and McConnell reached out to the family of Harold Warren Jarrell and completed numerous interviews. The families all pretty much said the same thing. When Warren was alive, they had cut ties with him because he was not a good person. His family was more than willing to help investigators in any way they could, and they were horrified to learn that Warren was being looked at as a murderer. What the detectives needed to do was obtain a DNA sample that was from Harold Warren Jarrell or his immediate family to see if the DNA was a match to the suspect DNA. DNA obtained from Harold Warren Jarrell would be the best to use, so the detectives looked into his death. They knew he died in Las Vegas, but they had to learn if he was buried or cremated. If he was buried somewhere, they would obtain a search warrant, and as a result of their investigation and DNA link, they would exhume his body. With that search warrant, they would then be able to obtain a DNA sample, which would then be sent to a lab and compared against the DNA sample obtained at the crime scene. Detectives quickly learned, however, that Jarrell had been cremated and that the coroner did not still have any sample from his body. This was not unusual since he had died 24 years earlier. The next step for the detectives was finding biological children of Jarrell and requesting that they voluntarily submit a DNA sample for lab comparison. This involved travel, as Jarrell's children were not local. The detectives set off for Georgia and made contact with Jarrell's daughter and former wife. They explained the situation and the women were willing to provide a DNA sample. Detectives drove back to Columbus and submitted the DNA to the BCI lab on June 22, 2020. As always, the lab did excellent work, and by Monday afternoon, the detectives received a phone call. It was conclusive that Harold Warren Jarrell was the killer of Kellyanne Prosser. Kellyanne's family would finally know the name of the killer after 38 years of investigation. How would they know? The detectives had to go in person and talk to Linda and Christina, Kellyanne's mother and sister. Detectives have always had close contact with Linda as they worked on this case. Because of that, they immediately left the office after receiving the call from the lab. They wanted to drive out and tell Linda personally about the information they had received. We recorded some of the heartbreaking conversation when detectives 
gave her the news. And you can hear for yourself some of that conversation. Some of it is personal, and we would never violate Linda's trust or faith in us by recording or releasing those very private moments that went between detectives and Linda. Some of that conversation she has consented to share with you. Her request, that you give her family the privacy and time to begin to heal. So we came here to tell you that we do have a suspect and we did solve the case. I'm the suspect, Harold Warren Jarrell, that's his name. So we just went out of town, me and Sarge went out of town and was able to verify this information through his DNA and and you're absolutely certain, right? No doubt. There's no doubt. You are nope. totally, yep. totally, totally certain. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because yeah. there's no. I don't. I don't want yeah. the wrong person. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. Nope. It's. We were able to do it through genealogical DNA. Mm. Just so you know, there's never any words to tell you how yep. much this means or how hard you work. You gave your hearts and soul. And you never stop believing in working for Kelly. And from the bottom of my heart, I thank you so much. Um, you know, and, you know, just coming here to be able to tell you this, and this is why we do the job, this is to be able to tell you guys. And this is why Ron did the job, this is why Greg did what this is why Julie Joseph did what she did. Um, all the detectives back then, we all, yeah, and they all ask about you guys. So, yeah. I mean, just, I just don't want you to think it was just us. And I could truly, I've told other people this, I could truly say this, that I've been cop since 87. I've never seen the cooperation from law enforcement as a whole. I mean, we got so many people involved. Um, BCI was involved. Um, the sergeant, the deputy chief Parker got the genealogical people involved. I mean, we got so many people involved, you know, and, and it's kind of neat to see, yeah, for one person, yeah. Yeah, that's one person worth that much to us. You know what I'm saying? So, I know it. Yeah, so, um, I, I, I have never had any doubt that you mm-hmm. were doing what you could mm-hmm. to take care mm-hmm. of this. So. Mm-hmm. All of his, all of the family too that, that escaped his Absolutely. Um, wrath, they've all been extremely helpful to us. They've, you know, they would have done anything they could do to help get you the answers. They all want to know that they, you know, feel for you and that they were sorry that you had to go through all of that. And, and uh, We have the answer of who did this. We'll never know why, but it's good enough. I mean, mm-hmm. it'll have to be good enough, and it is good enough. I know certainly it's been a rough year for everyone, but hopefully this is, you know, some mm-hmm. some news that. Well, I I also have said after his after her grandmother Eleanor died, there seems to be something that happens that we need solved or helped with in a problem, and that happened with my mother, and when her grandmother died, I said. I don't know why, but that's another angel up there, and she's going to help us out. So right now, Kelly's resting in the arms of both her grandmothers. They're side by side. 
we'll be okay. After Linda and Christina were told, a press conference was scheduled for Friday, June 26th, and the news was announced. After 38 long years and thousands of hours of investigation, we were finally about to tell the world who took Kellyanne Prosser from her family. Like we've said before, and we will say again, some cases get to you and stick with you. They all affect you, but any time it involves a child, those cases especially affect us. Sergeant McConnell read a letter from Linda during the press conference, and we're going to play that clip for you now. Linda gave us a statement to read for the family. I'm probably not going to be able to get through this. I'll do the best I can. Um, she wanted this read on behalf of the family. This is from the Garner family. For almost 38 years, our family has spoken for the one who was silenced and whose young life was cut short, Kellyanne Prosser. When Kellyanne left for school the morning of September 20th, 1982, we did not expect our time with her would abruptly end or that our future would change in every way imaginable. One moment we had this dazzling, mischievous eight-year-old little girl then suddenly all we had left were memories, photographs that will never age, a calendar marking a dreadful new holiday, a grave, and pieces of Kelly's life stored in a box. Our family has spent many long years waiting for Kellyanne's murder to be solved. But Kelly's family is not unique. Those who have suffered the murder of their loved one knows how devastating waiting for answers can be. Nor are we the only family who has laid awake at night, hoping and praying that their missing child would return home safely. Today, Today is, is one, one of those, those bittersweet, bittersweet moments that has been a long time coming. Our family is blessed to have finally gotten an answer after nearly four decades on who abducted, sexually assaulted, and murdered our darling Kellyanne. While new technology, advanced investigative techniques, and other factors have been an undeniable part of solving this homicide case, the real credit goes to all the local, state, federal, and partnering law enforcement agencies who showed tenacity, dedication, and tremendous teamwork in solving Kellyanne's case. There are no words to express how deeply our gratitude extends to all of you. We would like to specially recognize the many Columbus Division of Police homicide detectives who have worked countless hours on this case, trying to find Kelly's perpetrator to hold that individual accountable for her murder. Most recently, this has been Detective Dana Kroom, Sergeant Terry McConnell, and retired detectives Ron Custer and James McCoskey. Officer Greg Colrich also contributed by developing a podcast about Kellyanne's case. Gentlemen, thank you for never giving up. Thank you for never forgetting about this innocent child. And thank you for never forgetting that you were working for Kelly Ann. Your perseverance and determination, your caring and professional manner, your patience, diligence, and sacrifices have not gone unnoticed. Columbus is a better place because of your service with the Columbus Division of Police Cold Case Homicide Unit. Please know this. Today, 
you have given us the most incredible gift, and this gives us hope that other homicide court cases cases will be solved. Kellyanne's family is also appreciative of the continued interest by the media with regards to Kellyanne's abduction, sexual assault, and murder case. Although many of you would like to talk with us, please understand that old wounds have been reopened and our family now faces new heartaches. Therefore, as Kelly's family begins this new cycle of healing, we do ask for privacy and we trust that you will respect our wishes. Kellyanne was our beauty and our love. She sparkled with laughter and her blooming spirit shined amidst the thorns. Her Her light has been and will always be deeply missed. Today and forever, family and friends will remember our precious little girl. May Kellyanne, in the arms of her beloved grandmothers Rose and Eleanor, now rest in peace. Statement written by the Prosser family. Read by only some of the current and past Columbus Division of Police personnel involved in Kellyanne's case. On behalf of the fifth floor team, we would like to thank all of the people involved in making this project a reality. While this started as only an idea one year ago, we are extremely appreciative of all the support that we have received from the community and from our listeners. We would also like to especially thank the Garner family for their support throughout this entire podcast. Their wishes all along were that this new format would bring attention to unsolved cases with the hope that answers could finally be given to the families that have been waiting for so long. As previously mentioned, there were many moving parts in the creation of these podcasts, and because of these limitations, it can prevent us from committing to a regular release schedule. We are working towards more consistency and keeping you informed as we move forward. Currently, we are already working on another case for this series. Thank you again for your support and understanding. Finally, we would like to dedicate this episode to the Garner family and to retired Licking County Deputy Sheriff Sergeant George Croom, Detective Dana Croom's father, who passed away on March 29, 2020. Your service to the community has not been forgotten.